Welcome to the four words that could change your life. A special program for the new year on American Family Radio, featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of today's issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. And now, Ray Pritchard with four words that could change your life. Happy New Year. We're glad you're listening to American Family Radio today. I want to talk to you about four words that could change your life in 2022. Four words, simple, short, clear, definite. Four words that if you will say them as a prayer, they could change your life, not just this year, but every year to come. Let me begin not with those four words, but with a question. Suppose you could change anything about yourself. Where would you start? Here we are, first of the year. You want to wipe the slate clean. If you could get a fresh start, change anything at all about yourself, where would you begin? Lots of us would start on the outside. Would you be skinnier, taller, shorter, better looking? Would you change your ears, your eyes, your hair, your teeth, your legs, your bulges? If you could wave a magic wand and change your outward appearance, would it be a light touch-up or an extreme makeover? Would we even recognize you? We all go through periods where we desperately want to change our outward appearance. Teenagers live in a state of constant fear that they don't look good enough. So they tinker with this and try that and experiment with this fad or that fashion or this t-shirt or that hat or whatever the latest hip-hop artist happens to be wearing. But when we grow older, we get smarter. Or do we? We spend hours trying to find just the right dress or just the right shirt or just the right pair of pants so that we will fit in with whatever crowd we're trying to impress and we diet obsessively and work out, which is good for our health, but can be a losing battle because after we lose that weight and finally look good, it tends to come creeping back again, which is why so many of us make New Year's resolutions knowing that most of those resolutions won't last long enough to see the light of another day. Finally, you reach the stage in life where it's easier to simply try to cover it up than to lose it. In extreme cases, we may just give up altogether and stop caring about how we look. But as hard as it is to change on the outside, it seems infinitely harder to change on the inside. If there is anything we know about human nature, it is that people change slowly if they change at all. Change is hard. Think about the struggles of your own life. What would you change about yourself on the inside? If you could, would it be an impatient spirit? Would it be a critical tongue? Would it be envy of those around you? Would it be a spirit of discontentment? Would it be lingering anger and resentment? Would it be uncontrolled sexual temptation? Would it be financial mismanagement? Would it be a guilty conscience? Would it be a tendency to look down on others? Would it be pride and arrogance? Would it be prejudice toward others? Would it be a quick temper? Would it be profound discouragement? Would it be an inability to appreciate life? Would it be an ungrateful spirit? Would it be a disorganized life? Would it be an inability to say no? Would it be a mean streak? 
We all want to change something, but we don't know how to do it, and we don't know where to begin, and we secretly think even if we did begin, we could never make it to the end anyway. We all dream of being something different and better than the people we are today. Advertisers know this, and so that's why your email inbox is crammed with ads, promising that you can lose weight now, make money overnight, learn a new language, and become a better lover. I received one the other day that said, Watch unwanted pounds melt away. Hey, I like that metaphor. It sounds like fun. Take this pill, or eat this supplement, or drink this super-duper energy drink, and presto, those unwanted pounds will just melt away. What could be easier? Or those emails, and I do seem to get these sometimes, two or three times a week, telling me that the widow of the former president of Nigeria or Cameroon or Niger or maybe someplace I've never heard of because it probably doesn't really exist, that this widow wants me. She's chosen me out of everybody in the world. She wants me to help her get $4 million, which she will gladly split with me. If only I will send her my bank account information. Such a deal. She gets $2 million and I get $2 million. I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? And sad to say, there are too many people who fall for that scam, which is why those emails keep going out. Change is hard, isn't it? Go to any bookstore and you will see an entire wall of self-help books. Helping people change is big business nowadays. But here's the problem. When we get up in the morning and look in the mirror, all we see is the same old person looking back at us. Another day older and deeper in debt. That's why we move, change jobs, get a facelift, buy a new car, start a new career, get a divorce, find a new boyfriend or girlfriend, go to a new church, join a chess club, start working out, buy a new outfit, and on and on it goes. Now, it's not as if those things are wrong in themselves. Sometimes we need to make outward changes. But it's not the outward stuff that trips us up. It's the stuff on the inside that we can't seem to fix. Romans 12.2 says that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now that's just wonderful. Transformed, the Bible says, when our minds are renewed. Only problem, how does that happen? Let me give you two answers to that question. First, we must be transfigured on the inside. Did you get that? Not transformed, transfigured. That's an unusual word. The Greek word for transformed in Romans 12:2 is related to the English word metamorphosis. Now, you'll recall from seventh grade science class that metamorphosis is the process by which a caterpillar becomes a butterfly and a tadpole becomes a frog. It's a gradual change on the inside that produces a total transformation on the outside. Now, I use the word transfigure and not transform because this same Greek word in Romans 12:2 is used for the transfiguration of Christ. 
When the true glory of Christ began to shine through his humanity and he was transfigured before them, that's Mark chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he was transfigured before them and his clothes, that is the clothes of Jesus, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now that word transfigured means to be changed or transformed from one thing to another. Think of it this way. When Jesus was transfigured, he did not cease to be Jesus. He was, always, and always will be the Lord Jesus Christ. He was still who he had been moments before. But for a brief time, the curtain was pulled back, so to speak. James, Peter, and John saw as much of the true divinity of Christ as any man can see and still live. In that moment, in the transfiguration, they saw the real Jesus, the true Son of God from heaven. He didn't cease to be a man, but his true identity was revealed to them as, the Christmas carol says, true God of true God. Now, hold that thought and let's add to it what happens when a caterpillar spins the cocoon only to emerge later as a butterfly. It's not that the caterpillar changes its basic nature. Metamorphosis reveals what was always there in the genes of the caterpillar. Now, think of it this way. Caterpillars can't fly, but they were born to fly. How do you solve that conundrum? Metamorphosis. When the caterpillar has been changed into a butterfly, it becomes what God always intended it would be. Okay, hold that thought. Let's add one more to it. Tadpoles become frogs. They don't become butterflies. Only caterpillars can become butterflies. Metamorphosis reveals the essence of a thing. It doesn't change the essential essence. Caterpillars can't hop like frogs. Tadpoles will never soar like butterflies. Metamorphosis reveals the essential character of whatever was put there by the Creator in the beginning. Okay, hold that thought. Take everything we've just said. Let's apply this to every believer in Christ. When we come to Jesus, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16. That's an awesome thought that we who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we mere mortals, we humans, we earth-bound people, we have the mind of Christ within us. In this context, it means that we have the ability to estimate the true value of things. And in the context, I mean in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's what Paul wants us to understand. Because we have the mind of Christ, we can estimate the true value of things. Okay, in the art world, there are certain people who are full-time appraisers. And the ones who are really good at it, they make quite a bit of money. They can look at a painting and say, that's a forgery. It's worthless. Or that's worth $5,000 at auction. Or that's a Rembrandt. It will fetch at least $7 million. Appraisers are well paid because they have the ability to spot the real value of a painting. Now, I don't have that ability. I can look at a painting for hours and never know that it's a forgery. It's exciting when you learn the true value of something you own. That's why the PBS program Antiques Roadshow has become so popular. Every episode features someone who bought a lamp or an old trunk at a flea market for $40 
only to discover that it's really worth $7,000. We watch the show, and then we go rummage through our garage, hoping to find that valuable piece of junk we almost threw away last week. We watch because we want to know the true value of what we own. Years ago, we used to sing a little chorus that went something like this. Little by little, every day, little by little, in every way, Jesus is changing me. And the chorus went like this. He's changing me, my blessed Savior. I'm not the same person I used to be. It's been slow going, but there's a knowing that someday perfect I will be. Go back to the illustration of the art appraiser for a moment. You aren't born with the ability to know the difference between a Rembrandt and a fake. It takes years of study and the long apprenticeship, and you have to prove yourself along the way. But if you are gifted and determined, if you are willing to pay the price, you can be transformed or transfigured, if you will, into an appraiser. It doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen over time. The same is true in the spiritual life. We have the mind of Christ, which means we have the ability from God to estimate the true value of things. As we reject the ways of the world, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. We learn over time to see things as God sees them. This isn't instant or automatic, but since it is God's desire, Having a transformed mind is within the reach of every believer. In other words, our minds must be transformed. They must be transfigured. But there's a second part. We must also reprogram our minds. Be transformed, Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. How do you renew your own mind? It doesn't happen quickly or easily, but it can happen. First, we must not think that real mind change is impossible. Some of us may be so stuck in our lust or our bitterness or our general grumpiness or our immaturity or our misfittedness, a word I just made up, that seems to describe a few people I've met along the way, or our irritability or our addictive behaviors or our love of money or our laziness or whatever it is that bothers us and holds us back and keeps us chained or crabby or frustrated and unable to make any progress spiritually so that year after year after miserable year we seem to be in the same old ruts. If that's the way you feel about your own life, I don't blame you for thinking that real change is impossible. But you're wrong because God says you're wrong. You don't have to stay the way you are. You can be changed from the inside out. God intends to change you, and he is, in fact, doing it. So don't give up on yourself, no matter how lousy you feel about your own lack of progress. Second, don't think that you need some sort of miracle experience or some crisis moment in order to be transformed. For most of us, spiritual transformation happens over a long period of time, a little at a time, a step at a time, a day at a time. Remember what the Bible says, walk in the Spirit. And what is walking? It's one step after another in the same direction over a long period of time. Now, seeking instant transformation actually can be dangerously misleading. 
I have no problem with calling people forward to rededicate their lives to Christ. But that's only the first step in a lifelong process of inner transformation. And you don't have to walk an aisle or raise your hand to have your mind renewed by the Lord. Third, don't fall into the trap of thinking that if you just try harder, you'll get better. Trying harder generally sets us up for failure. This is not a call to pull up your bootstraps and give it the old college try one more time. When Paul says, be transformed, he uses a passive form of the verb. He doesn't say, transform yourself, which would be utterly impossible. I don't have the power to change my depraved mind into the mind of Christ. Only God can do that for me. But does that mean I don't play any part in the process? Not at all. The work of renewing my mind is God's work, and only He can do it. But He calls me to cooperate with Him by disciplining myself so that the transformation will actually take place. So, I got an email from a friend who plans to run in the Chicago Marathon. I didn't even know he was a runner until I got the email. But evidently, he's been in training for months, working on his diet, following a strict regimen of running so many miles each week, building up and then tapering off so that he'll be in peak condition on race day. I'm very impressed by that. And if the truth be told, I'm a little depressed or envious. I can't decide which because I'm sure I couldn't run five miles no matter how much you paid me. I can bike 26 miles with no problem, but running well, running, that's something else entirely. I guess I could do it if I wanted to, but I've never had the desire and certainly never put forth the effort. I'm very proud of my friend for his enormous sacrifice of time and energy, which is going to a good cause since he is also raising money for world vision. Desire must be combined with discipline. Here's a little equation I learned from Dr. Charles Ryrie in 1972 when he spoke to the summer counselors at Word of Life Island. He put the following equation on the blackboard. T plus HH equals SG. Time plus habits of holiness equals spiritual growth. That seems as solid to me now as it did 50 years ago. The transformation of the mind takes time and it takes a determination to develop those habits of holiness. If I were going to add anything to Dr. Ryrie's equation, it would be this. T plus HH plus GE equals SG. GE stands for Godly Encouragement. Time plus habits of holiness plus godly encouragement equals spiritual growth. I doubt that anyone will grow spiritually without being around others who can encourage you to make wise choices on a daily basis. For all of us, this will mean being part of a local congregation. For most of us, it also means being part of a Sunday school class or some sort of small group where we can develop relationships with other Christians who will both encourage us and also hold us accountable. Now, Romans 8.29 says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God intends that one day we will look like Jesus. In 1464, a sculptor named Augustino de Duccio began working on a massive piece of flawed marble. He intended to produce a magnificent sculpture of an Old Testament prophet for a cathedral in Florence, Italy. 
After two years, he gave up on the project. In 1476, Antonio Rossellino started to work on the same piece of marble, and in time, he abandoned it also. In 1501, a 26-year-old sculptor named Michelangelo was offered a considerable sum of money to produce something worthwhile from that enormous block of marble. As he began his work, he saw a major flaw near the bottom that had stymied the other sculptors. He decided to turn that part of the stone into a broken tree stump that would support the right leg. He worked on the marble for four years until he had produced the incomparable David. Today, the 17-foot-tall statue stands on display at the Academy Gallery in Florence, Italy, where people from around the world come to view it. More than a masterpiece, it is one of the greatest works of art ever produced. Many experts say there is no statue more perfect. How did he do it? Here is his answer in colloquial terms. I cut away everything that didn't look like David. Now apply that to the spiritual life. All of us are works in progress. We are all under construction. If you've ever visited a construction zone, you know it is noisy and looks messy. While the hammering and sawing continues, it's hard to imagine what the result will be. But God never stops working on us because there is so much that needs to be done. In my mind's eye, I picture God as a sculptor working with a rough piece of marble. He's working on a big chunk named Ray Pritchard. It's hard because the chunk is badly marred, misshapen, discolored, and cracked in odd places. It's about the worst piece of marble a sculptor could find. But God is undeterred, and he works patiently at his job, chipping away at the bad parts, chiseling an image into the hard stone, stopping occasionally to polish here and there. One day, he finally finishes one part of the statue. The next morning, when he returns to the studio, that section is messed up and scarred and cut up. I thought I finished that yesterday, he says. Who's been messing with my statue? With a guilty look, I slowly raise my hand. I'm my own worst enemy. But God is faithful. He patiently picks up his chisel and goes back to work. He chips away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. In my case, he's got a long way to go, but I am encouraged by the knowledge that he won't quit halfway through a project. When God starts, he finishes. One day, all us unfinished people will be sanctified through and through. We will stand before the Lord, blameless in his sight. We know this is true because God finishes what he starts. So, I said at the beginning, I was going to give you four words that could change your life. Really, a four-word prayer. Here it is. Lord, please change me. Simple and clear. I urge you to start 2022 with those four words. Say it with me right now. Lord, please change me. One more time, all together. Lord, please change me. Get ready, folks. It's going to be a great year. Not easy. There will be a few surprises, some laughter, and some tears. But I want to say, buckle up, child of God. We are being changed into the image of Jesus. Here's that prayer one more time. Lord, please change me. And I just want to add, start today, Lord, and don't stop until the work is done. Thanks for listening to this special broadcast from all of us at American Family Radio. Happy New Year.
You've been listening to the American Family Radio Special for the new year. Four words that could change your life. Featuring Ray Pritchard. Ray is president of Keep Believing Ministries and a frequent co-host of today's issues on American Family Radio. If you would like to connect with Ray or learn more about Keep Believing Ministries, visit keepbelieving.com. You can hear this message again on the podcast page at AFR.net. Four words that could change your life is an American Family Radio special presentation.